This show is brought to you by MX. MX is the financial data platform and leader in modern connectivity, helping organizations everywhere connect to the world's financial data and turn raw, unstructured data into their most valuable asset to deliver intelligent and personalized money experiences. MX connects more than 16,000 financial institutions and fintechs, providing the industry's most reliable and secure data connectivity network. By the way, it's not too late to check out all of the great content from Money Experience Summit. Get exclusive, limited-time access to four recorded keynote presentations in all of the breakout sessions at www.mx.com slash summit slash rewind. You can also find it on the MX site. That's slash summit slash rewind. Peyton Manning and Allison Felix were pretty good, but it was no FinTech Fight Club. Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. I'm fortunate to travel the world talking about fintech, banking, regulation, and innovation. MX is one of my favorite groups to speak for, and not because it usually means a trip to Utah to a ski resort, but because of the energy they put into creating an agenda and curating a set of speakers that goes well beyond a trade show or a user group. This year's money experience was no different. The theme, experiences that power how the world connects, moves, and interacts with money. I did my part to mix things up. Rather than moderating the great debate between Ron Shevelin and Jim Maroos, well, let's just say the gloves came off and I got to officiate the first ever FinTech Fight Club. After this message, listen to a rebroadcast as Ron and Jim duke it out. Tell you what, this is just the beginning. Tweet us at BreakingBanks1 who you would like to enter the ring. All right, welcome to the ballroom. This is our second breakout of the day. We are excited to have you. I would normally about this time of day say, make sure you're caffeinated, have all the beverages that you need, but I'm pretty sure that what we have planned is going to keep you awake. It's gonna be fabulous. Okay, so um, Jason Heinrichs is our moderator, for lack of a better term today. Um, He's the CEO of LA Labs Alliance. He's also, I'm sure all of you know, that he's got a pedigree that includes Harvard and West Point, and he's an advisory board member for South by Southwest. He's also the co-host of Breaking Banks and hosts the FinTech 5 podcast. So a couple days ago, Jason posted on LinkedIn, never give creative control to someone sick of the usual panels. So a few months ago, we had a virtual session with these contenders, but it was pretty civil. So today, it sounds like we're breaking out all the stops. So I will turn the time over to Jason Heinrichs. Welcome to today's main event, the FinTech Fight Club. No more debate. The gloves are coming off. Our first contender, the Oracle of Ohio, 
the bad boy behind the financial brand, and the reigning champion at Orange Theory, Jim the Moose Moose. And now, the reigning champion, weighing in at 180 pounds of snark, the bruiser from just north of Boston, Forbes contributor, and oh yeah, the director of research at Cornerstone, Ron the Shiv Shevler! All right, here is the format. The first ever we're trying this. The reigning champion may or may not go down to one of the heaviest contenders he's ever had. There will be 12 rounds. Jim, as the challenger, gets to begin. He has a minute and 30 seconds to make his point. Ron will respond with a minute and 30, and then Jim gets to counterpunch for 30 more seconds. At the end of 12 rounds of 12 thought-provoking questions, you, the audience, will decide who the winner is and who will fly back in shame. Gentlemen, are you ready? Ready. Ready. All right. Jim, let's see if we can work both hands here. What <laughs> is going on in fintech? Is the market overheated? You know, you, you, you'd think it was overheated based on the amount of activity going right now, but it's not overheated. Investment levels continue to increase. We see the largest amount of investment from VC firms now more than ever before. In addition, while there may be some failures on the horizon, the reality is it's not overheated because more than ever, traditional financial institutions are trying to now move towards partnering with fintech organizations of all sizes. So they don't necessarily have to make it on their own. Financial institutions traditionally now need fintech, need third-party providers to provide the innovation level needed to move forward to meet the customer experience expectations that are out there. They can't do it alone, so I think there's a whole new realm of what's going on right now, and there's going to be more opportunities for fintech organizations to fill the need of the traditional banks. Perfect. 15 seconds to spare. Ron? Uh, Jim, first let me say thanks for, for uh, taking the stage with me. I thank MX for this, and I have to tell you all how difficult it is for me to do this. I was raised to respect my elders, and I, oh. I don't know what I'm going to do about that today. Low blow, okay. low blow, keep it clean. Second of all, I, ha I cannot disagree with you more. There's no way I think fintech is overheated. Uh, he said it was, but uh, it wasn't. But, uh. <laughs> so here's the thing we got to keep in mind, is that the first round of fintech that started 10, maybe 15 years ago at this point was very focused on the front-end consumer-related things. But what it's really moved to now and why we're nowhere near being overheated is that the focus is on redoing the infrastructure of the financial services industry. Think of it as the plumbing. What's happened before with Robinhood and Simple and Movin and things like that, all great companies, but very focused on changing the user interface and the front end. What's happening now in fintech is investment in the plumbing, in the infrastructure. And that takes a lot more time, a lot more investment, but ultimately have a much huger impact on the industry. 
And even as we look out to the next phase of decentralized finance, we're nowhere near overheated on the market. That having been said, there are certainly some fintechs whose uh, valuations may be overdone, Second warning. but not, the, uh, not, over, no, not overall. I actually thought I said not overheated. That's what I, obviously that's the direction I went. But I think when we do, we do agree that the direction of the fintech movement is now changing. I agree that it's not just the customer experience, it's the infrastructure. The question's going to be, can the smaller organizations survive? I think we both know that right now, overall, the financial underpinnings of these are still being driven by the VC firms as opposed to good business models. It's your 10-second warning. Anything else? Well, that, nah, that covered it. I, I beat them. <laughs> Even if they agree on a point, you get to choose who made the better argument. All right, Jim, you get to go up first. Who goes first again? Oh, sorry, Ron, you go first. Thanks. <laughs> Losing my place. How much All did right. he pay you to do this? Not nearly enough. I think he actually paid to do this. All right. European versus U.S. challenger banks in the U.S. Who will win? No question it's the U.S. Here's why. The European fintechs have come into the U.S. with a very misguided notion of what's going on in the U.S., I've had an opportunity to interview the leaders of some of those organizations and they've come into the U.S. And I like to ask them, what's the great wrong in the U.S. that you're going to make right by coming here? And they all focus on, well, the big banks and the banks in general have a lousy mobile banking experience. That's not it at all. If you actually look at the large banks' mobile banking offerings, uh, it's very feature-laden. And sure, there are smaller institutions who could do a better job, but it's not why the, the European banks are, are, are going to do anything. The U.S. fintechs, however, are starting to really focus on niche markets. I like to call them community fintechs because they're focused on narrow niches of the market. Companies like Panacea Financial that focus in on young physicians or First Boulevard focusing on the unique needs of African-American consumers. That's why the U.S. fintechs are going to win, because they understand the unique needs of the segments that they're serving and the European banks aren't focusing on that at all. Jim? You know, it's interesting that we started to find it as the U.S. versus European. We have to think about this. This is a global economy. It's not the U.S. against European. I mean, honestly, only two of the fintech top 50 in, by Forbes are outside the U.S. So you'd think that U.S. would win. But the reality is the competition in the U.S. is stronger than any place else. I'm not saying the Europeans are going to win, but what I'm saying is why aren't we not taking into account the fintechs from Brazil, the fintechs from India, the fintechs from China, the fintechs from uh, Mexico right now? These are all filling the needs of the underserved and the underbanked, and they could easily come in the U.S. More importantly, I think we are narrowing it to say which fintechs from which area. I believe right now that the bigger threat are not the fintechs. It's the big tech firms. It's the Googles. It's the uh, Apples. It's the PayPals. It's, it's those organizations that right now have a bigger base to start with and are making inroads in the fintech world in a different way than either fintechs or traditional banks can. Jim, I totally agree. However, you didn't answer the question. The question was European versus U.S. banks, so minus five points for not answering <laughs> the right question. Ready for the next round. <laughs> Jim, we're back leading with you. And this is going to be the last of our global landscape questions before we move on to trends. Should traditional financial institutions be in crypto and DeFi? 
you know, there's part of me that says they should be in it because there's a marketplace for it. On the other hand, I would say of most financial institutions out in the audience today, they have a much bigger priority than dealing with crypto and other types of new traditions, new movements such as that. We have to worry about new account opening speed. We have to worry about improving the back office so that it can deliver a better experience. We have to worry about core transformation. We have to worry about data analytics. We have to worry about things much bigger than whether or not we're gonna offer crypto. What is the level of change that's gonna bring from a financial basis in offering crypto? I mean, the, the community bank in my, my city, why would they wanna offer crypto when they haven't gotten the basics of what they have to do in banking right? We have to talk about priorities as opposed to the next shining object. Jim, I agree that those are a lot of issues that the banks have to face. However, at the top of the list, what you should be focusing on are the needs of your customers, the needs of your consumers. And the reality is, is that there is a huge demand among consumers in the US for crypto, whether it's for investment purposes or maybe to make retail purchases and so forth. And there's also huge demand. I conducted a survey at the end of last year and asked consumers, uh, if you have crypto, how interested would you be in getting it from your bank? And a huge percentage, nearly half of consumers who have cryptocurrency are interested in getting it from their banks or credit unions. Now, don't, aren't you customer-driven? Aren't you consumer-driven? Sure, those are issues, but Jim, offering cryptocurrency to meet consumer demand is part of helping consumers manage their financial health. You don't want to just leave it over to a Coinbase uh, crypto exchange who could care less about their customers' financial health. That's what banks and credit unions, especially community-based financial institutions, need to do. Part of their digital transformation is providing better advice capabilities and so forth. And so the crypto, I think, is absolutely something. To the second part of your question, though, which Jim did not address, let's make sure we don't remember that, was Keep the DeFi at question. And to that, your question doesn't make any sense because decentralized finance doesn't include banks and credit unions. Done. You know, you know, it's interesting. Ron quoted his own research that said 50% of those in crypto want to use their local bank. That same research that Ron did noted that it's only 20% of the marketplace. So should we be moving our priorities for 10% market share change where most of those customers right now already have a provider that delivers that? I think there's better priorities to be focused on. I get my five points from the last round back. <laughs> All right, gentlemen, I'd like to remind you, because this was one of the most contentious questions before, keep it clean, above the waist the whole way. Will user experience replace marketing as the most effective customer acquisition and retention tool? I go first. Yep. It's Ron goes first. This is the title of an article that Jim recently published. Yes, the question actually doesn't make any sense, Jason. I'm sorry, because this is important. User experience is marketing. What is marketing? Marketing are the tools and activities that you have at your disposal to influence consumers' affinity, interest, proclivity uh, to purchase with you and their ultimate satisfaction with your products and services. User experience is actually a critical part of influencing affinity uh, and preference and, and, and intention to do more business and satisfaction. But here's the point I want to make about looking forward. We're getting to the point in the industry 
where you can't move the needle that much more on user experience. Now look, any one of your individual organizations might need a lot of improvement. But here's the thing, if you're a mid-sized financial institution looking to compete on customer experience or user experience, you're up against companies like Bank of America and JP Morgan Chase who spend $3 billion a year on marketing. When when Capital One decided to improve its user interface, did it go out and hire a consulting firm? No, it acquired the consulting firm. You're, as a mid-sized financial institution, or even a bit larger, you can't compete on that. You have to have a great user experience, but your competitive differentiation is going to come from product differentiation. Interesting how he, he said he doesn't have to answer the question you asked. It's also interesting that we would never disagree on the need for great customer experience. What I do disagree on is that traditional marketing, as in advertising, things of this nature, are dead. They have to be rethought. Number two, we have to be realizing that today more than ever, the user experience, number one, is important, but it's really the data and analytics that drive that. If we don't get the data analytics and the applied analytics right, we're going to miss the entire thing. How many of you are marketers in any sense of the word? Okay, so if you have a terrible product, how well is it? How good can you do in promoting and selling something that sucks? I mean, the reality is you don't hear Tesla doing advertising. You don't hear Airbnb doing advertising. Why? Because they have a great customer experience that word of mouth takes care of it, and they spend more on customer experience than the others. So I think Ron said that marketing is customer experience, which wasn't the question. It was an either or. It's good to take both sides of the equation, but the reality is I say that today, more than ever, you've got to focus on customer experience, and you look also in the marketplace where marketers – are being replaced. And who are they being replaced by? Who are they being taken out of Bank of America and other places? They're being taken over by the CTO, the CIO, because it's, again, the driving of data and analytics to drive better customer experience. So we don't agree on, we don't disagree on customer experience. I think we disagree on the way you answer that question. <laughs> 30 seconds to respond. I got nothing. <laughs> I got nothing on that one. <laughs> All right, Jim, we're going to start with you now. Are super apps the way of the future, the way PayPal seems to think so? You know, it's interesting. What PayPal is talking about in the super app is connected experiences. So when you talk about is, is a super app the way to go, I'm going to say no, it's not. The reality today is what we have to find is better connected experiences. We have to bring together the elements. Right now, all of us, are embracing open banking, but not with our financial institutions. We're embracing open banking in a way on our own where I'm putting my traditional financial institution, I'm putting Acorns, I'm putting Robinhood, I'm putting them all together in a way that works best for me. The best connected experience is not a, a super app. That's an, another way of connecting experience. The best connected experience is providing the services your customers want from any provider in a way where you're transferring data and delivering that higher level of experience, even if you don't create it within your organization. That's the super app. The super app is not some platform, even though I think PayPal will be successful, as Alibaba was and others, but I don't want to get in shopping apps, but I want to have embedded banking where I'm connected to the consumer where they want me to be. The future of loyalty is going to be how often and how much am I accessing this tool to get that better money experience? Ron, I think he's trying to pay you me take off my, right now. So my credit card. <laughs> <laughs> You're buying tonight. With your card, no problem. <laughs> Ron, 
I, I think we have to start by defining what super app is. And I believe, and, and this is not my definition, but from what I have found reading, is that a super app is an ecosystem. It enables a set of experiences across a wide range of activities with a difference, well, the, the key factor is that it's within this walled garden. And the reason that uh, super apps grew up in, in Asia was for a couple reasons. Number one, there was no established large players for a lot of these uh, services that were provided that helped bring this together. Number two, there's a, an important technology aspect to super apps. The reason that super apps started and, and became popular in Asia was because they didn't have high-powered iPhones like we do in the US. So they rely heavily on a, on a type of application called mini apps, which are, don't need to be updated in app stores, uh, require less uh, pro uh, processing power and so forth. In the US, we have a super app. It's called the, the iPhone or whatever your Google phone is called. That is the super app. We also have a lot of large players across a lot of the various types of products and services that aren't going to give up power to a, a, a more centralized uh, super app. So I don't know how, if I'm agreeing with you or disagreeing with you, but I don't think uh, PayPal's vision of a super app is where it's at. Ron, respectfully speaking, I know you talk about how Asia does the super app, but I've been to Asia, I've been to Shenzhen. You don't know super apps. The reality is in China, it's different than what can be created in the United States. Alibaba, Tencent, and, and uh, Ping An are all under pressure right now for providing too much data. But the reality is they still have embedded experiences and they do have very smart phones. I think Huawei, Huawei would disagree with you tremendously thinking they just had those dumb flip phones. I love how you brought up the Lloyd Benson who actually lost that election. <laughs> so way to go. All right, Ron, I believe we are back to you. What is the industry's white whale? You know, that elusive goal that Captain Ahab drove himself crazy, that obsession that was his ultimate demise. Yeah, simple answer is the white whale is personalization. There is this belief that if we get enough data and figure this all out, we're going to be able to personalize messages and personalize offers, when the reality is, is that what consumers really want is the right product or service for them. And so instead of focusing in on this, well, let's personalize this message, and gee, Jim, we just saw that you, uh, you know, were, were browsing on this site, so uh, hey, you, know, you were looking for a flight to, to Salt Lake City next week. Would you like a flight to Salt Lake City? It's like, no, I've already been there. This is that personalization goal. The personalization that's really needed is the personalization of products and services, not messages and offers and, and advice. Ready, Jim? Yeah. Always ready. You know, I, I think the white whale that I'd like to focus on is loyalty. We keep on talking about wanting to provide customer loyalty, but the reality is we don't have loyalty. We keep our accounts, but we're not keeping our relationships. Do another analysis of your customer base. What we do in our loyalty base is say, what's the attrition of our accounts? I haven't moved my accounts from my primary financial institutions, but they don't have my loyalty. They don't have the relationships across the whole ecosystem. My business bank, my loyalty was with PayPal. My loyalty in my personal bank is probably with Acorns and Robinhood. Those organizations hold my deposits. They have an account with me, but they're not loyal. And the reality is we've been searching for that loyalty factor for decades. And the reality is it's 
farther from reach today than ever before. What we need, though, is engagement. The more engagement we have, the more loyal to the brand the consumer is going to be. Not by number of accounts, not by deposit levels. Jim Punch? Uh, no, actually, I'm going to agree with you to a certain extent, but I want Thank to tweak you. the... Um, okay, go on to the next question. But oh. I want to tweak your, um, <laughs> your definition of loyalty. Loyalty isn't, I do all of my business with a single provider, but loyalty is staying with one of the providers. Now, as marketers, as providers, you do want to capture as much of the wallet share of, of your customers and members as you can. But I think, Jim, you're right in that in today's world, our, what's happened as a result of fintech is that this is unbundling aspect. Yeah. And it, you can now sort of get best of breed, not checking account, but individual features that used to be related to a checking account or some other type of product and get it from any number of providers. Now, I don't think that that disqualifies somebody from being loyal, uh, but the reality is, is that from the financial institution perspective and from the fintech perspective, it's going to require more collaboration and partnership to enable that, which helps to you know, engender the loyalty or, or the, the lack of changing uh, of the account. But uh, I think we're kind of on the same page. I just want to push on your definition of loyalty. So you're six rounds in. It kind of feels like you're both hanging on to each other and not swinging the punches. So you're going to have to take it up a notch. <laughs> okay. Go spit in a bucket, grab yourself some water. Ron, we're going to start with you. We're moving on to the banker challenge. Do I go first or do you go first this one? Yeah, you were doing the rebuttal right there. That was your counterpunch. Oh, oh sorry. Good. So it's me first. So Is the banking first, business right? model broken? It's Ron. You sure? If he did I did the counterpunch. Okay. He goes All first. Right. You know what? We may both figure. Oh. Okay, yeah. There we go. <laughs> Great. Is the banking business model broken? You know, it's an interesting way to look at it because what is the business banking model or the banking model really? It's broken from this perspective that the back office has to be rethought. But we're still doing banking by taking deposits, providing loans, providing security in the marketplace. So is the banking model broken? No. The way we're doing banking is broken. So what we're talking about is it's the same model of what we do for the consumer it's the way we deliver services. It's the way we work in the back office that we have to fix. We're still working with the same confines. And I believe that the financial institutions today are focusing on those. We just did some recent research for the digital bank report. And the model itself last year, organizations were doing terrible with digital account opening and digital loan acquisition. This year, they sped it up. So that model didn't change. But the way they applied it, the way they deployed it has changed and tremendously improved over the last 12 months. You said, no, the business model is not broken. Correct. Yes, it is. And here's why. There is a fundamental disconnect between what financial services and banking in particular costs the consumer and the value that they get from that. Think of your, put yourselves in your consumer shoes now, not your banking shoes. How many of you really believe an overdraft is worth $35 to you? Nobody. I don't even have to wait for you to raise your hand. There's this disconnect. The business banking, the banking business model today is very driven by fees, mostly punitive fees, inactive accounts, overdrafts, other things like that. That's not what consumers get value from. And part of the business model problem is if you go and ask the consumer, what value do you get from your checking account? They're probably look at you like you're crazy because they don't see that. That's why the business banking model is broken. There is this disconnect between cost and value. It's interesting. 
it gets back down to the definition. I think we both agree. Definition of banking model, because the reality is even the overdraft fees, even the way we, we generate funds, that banking model does not drive that. The banking model, the way it's deployed, drives it. And organizations are adjusting to that. And the way they adjust to the overdraft protection, the way we adjust to fees, the way they're trying to build better value, it's not changing the model. It's changing the delivery of that model. Ron, we're back to you. Can community banks stay quiet about ESG issues, or do they need to take a stand? Uh, they absolutely have to take a stand. The, the importance of ESG-related factors, and here's sort of the, the, the interesting part about this. I think if you ask the average consumer, what's ESG, they won't know. But if you ask them, how important are environmental concerns? Well, I can tell you, having just done some research, I asked consumers in the US, how important are a number of social factors, things like mental health and environmental protection and things like that. The most frequent answer was environmental concerns. And even among the consumers that didn't say environmental concerns were the most important, more than half said that it was a very important factor. And so what's happening is that consumers are looking to do, especially younger consumers, are, are looking to do business with companies that they believe share their values from an environmental perspective. And so I don't think community banks can sit back and, and try to ignore this any longer. And as a proof point, it was, uh, I forget which, I think it was eMarketer that is projecting that Aspiration, whose CEO Andre Cherney is in one of the other rooms doing a session at the moment, is projected to have 6 million customers by 2025. Uh, and I think that really show, goes to show that uh, you know, there is a strong consumer interest in environmental concerns and they want it from their financial institutions. Boy, this, this question really ticked me off because basically it was structured as, you know, do community banks need to take a stand? I'm going to say of any of the organizations, of any asset size, community banks are already taking a stand. I mean, tell me, are there any community banks in the room that say they don't support the community, that they haven't gone and prov provided outreach around diversity, providing better, I mean, the community banks are the best at this. So do they have to improve it? Sure. But to say they, do they have to take a stand, they're already taking a stand. They, they're the best at hiring. They're the best at being community involved. They're the best at being community aware of what's going on. Community banks came to the rescue. The banks I'm worried about are those mid-tier organizations and the larger banks. So Ron's research is probably completely correct, but it's not the community banks that should be faulted. Can they improve it? Yes. Do they need to improve it? Yes. But to say that do they need to step up, I'm saying they already have. Two counterpoints. Number one, my research is definitely right, not probably right. <laughs> Second, you are conflating community involvement and support with ESG, and I think those are two different uh, aspects. And I don't dispute that the community-based financial institutions, both community banks and credit unions, are very involved in their communities, but that's, that does not equal ESG. You want 13 seconds back, Jim? No, good. Oh, even I, I, can, wait, I can keep going then. I can do something else. 13 seconds. Go for it. I'm good. All right, took 13 seconds to up in that time. All right, so we're back to Jim, correct? Yes. All right, the biggest challenge facing banks, speed of change, culture, legacy technology, regulation, or something else? Something else. Anybody who listens to my podcast, reads my reports, reads my articles knows I am all about the fact that legacy leadership is by far the biggest inhibitor to digital transformation. You talk to solution providers in the room today, 
They're going to say they can't get a listen or they can't get a, a, a contract signed, mainly because top management doesn't prioritize what's important. What's the difference between fintech organizations and traditional banks right now? It's a challenger mindset. Something's built from the top down. I can see, you can see the organizations in traditional financial institutions and fintech firms that have this. But bottom line right now, what all of us are being held back by are leaders that right now have been in the business for 30 years, surround themselves by other guys that have played golf with them 30 years ago when they came to the bank, and they haven't brought any diversity into the equation, haven't brought any new thoughts into the room. And bottom line is, they're not being threatened by the financials because the stockholders are very happy. That is not going to go into the future, but they won't be around to have to do it. So legacy leadership is the biggest problem we have to deal with right now. Uh, first of all, nobody reads your, uh, listens to your podcast or reads your articles. Uh, I know that for a fact. Um, Ron's going to be on the podcast on next Tuesday, by the way, <laughs> which will definitely bring the numbers down. Okay. <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, well, my wife will listen to it, so, you know, you'll get that because she's going to want to know what I ended up saying. Uh, so you have a really interesting answer to that question, and I think mine is very similar, actually, except you said it was none of the above, and my answer is it's culture. And I'm not a touchy-feely guy. I don't like this cultural nonsense, you know? But when I look at the other problems, it's like, why don't banks and credit unions address the legacy technology and all those things you, li you listed? It's probably, to a large extent, because they have a culture that doesn't enable them or force them to address those things. But, but what years, where do they get the culture from? They get it from the leadership. So... I kind of agree with you, Jim, but I put it in the context of, of culture because without, and I don't want to call it culture of innovation or any of that kind of, and, and you, I, I've read your article, there's a culture of, of AI, there's a culture of sale, I mean, forget it. What you need is just a culture of being driven by the, the customers and, and members that, that you serve. And if, I got 10 seconds, so I'm going to use it. Uh, it. If you're truly driven by the segment you serve, then you will be more innovative and, and create those changes that are needed. You know, it's great. Ron, I appreciate you agreeing with me again. And the fact that the but I reality a better is reason. culture cannot be created without strong leadership. You know, you look at MX, great example. I don't think anybody would doubt the fact that Ryan and Brandon have built an amazing culture that has lasted the test of time and has done so well since its birth, the... Uh, over 10 years ago. And Ron and I both go back to those days. But the reality is, it's because of the leadership. It's hard to build culture from the bottom up. So I think at the basis level, it's the leaders that have to be adjusted, not necessarily the culture until you get the leaders that can do it. All right, you both doing okay? Anyone Great. need to tap out? Right? Okay, We're good. no forfeit. No one's going to drop to the ground. You're both getting on in age. I just want to make sure I'm not <laughs> into this. All right, we're to the last three questions. This is what I call the hot round. Simple questions. Explain your work, though, because I think that's where we're going to tease out the things. So we're back to Ron first. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Pick the winner. Zelle, Venmo, Cash App. All three of them. This is not a zero-sum game in P2P. All are going to be winners, uh, and you're just never going to convince Zelle that they're a loser anyway. But they, uh, look, there's a place for every one of them. But if you were to say who's going to win more than the other, then I'm going to tell you Square Cash App has got a, a lot of room to run in this. 
predominantly because of their business model and how they're focusing on really creating an ecosystem and a network of both consumers and merchants. Uh, so I think their growth path is going to be a lot more. But there's, this is not a zero-sum game in, in P2P. That was yeah. a fast answer. Interesting. I would kind of agree with you. But I think it's interesting that Jason asked us, do we like apples or oranges better? Because I do not see Zelle and Cash App and Square being the same, Venmo and Cash App. They basically, Cash App and Square, Cash App and Venmo are one place, uh, Venmo or Zelle's in the other. The real difference, though, is I agree with Ron that Cash App has a lead right now. They're growing fast. They have a better revenue model. But the pocketbook behind uh, Venmo is pretty strong with PayPal. PayPal, in a discussion with them, I think they're the legacy fintech. If there can be such a thing, they are the legacy fintech that has been surprised by the, so by the ramp up of buy now, pay later, and has been surprised by some of the advances of Cash App. There's an innovation issue, an innovation gap, and Cash App, again, probably is in an advanced state there comparatively to, uh, to, to Venmo. But I think they also have, a, Venmo is a bigger customer base, and you can do a lot with a big customer base and a big bag of cash at PayPal. Ron, counterfeit. Venmo has a big uh, uh, customer base, but they overlap significantly with Zelle. And Square is creating a platform of both merchants and consumers. They're growing that well beyond just being a payments platform. Venmo is trying to catch up. I see Zelle getting more into the B2B world. That's why I don't believe there's just one winner in this. Jim, anything you want to respond to that? We're trending a little ahead of time. I, th I think we're pretty we're good there. All right. Pick the winner. FedNow versus RTP. Jim, you're first. You know, this question threw me off, too, because, you know, the I'm, one cash app is in place. The other one is like saying, who's going to win the Super Bowl this year, the Browns or the Packers? The game hasn't even been laid out yet. We don't even know who's going to be in the game. You know, Fed, Fed uh, um, FedNow? Yeah, FedNow. Thank you. That, that, Fed sometimes. back on it's that. Fed. FedNow hasn't even defined what it's going to be. It's not coming online for another two years. A lot can change. We have to worry about security issues. Yes, we have to engage community banks and local banks and mid-tier banks to the speed of cash. Overall, who's going to win? The consumer wins. Because right now, we've built in so much slowness in the payment process. I get, a, I get a wire. I get notified the day after. And the day after that, I get the data that supports that that says, where did it come from? Being a subscriber business, it's pretty bad when your, your wire doesn't define who just bought a subscription and you can't get back to them and say, it's accessible to you. So we have to wait an extra day. The speed of payments is very important. The consumer is going to win. Ron? I don't think the consumer was one of the choices in that, but I'm going with RTP, and at least I know I've got Peter Davies' vote on this one. So here's why RTP is going to win over FedNow. It's not FedNow, it's Fed too late. They just simply will not be able to catch up to the, to the, to the uh, uh, lead and, and uh, momentum that RTP has in, in, two, in two years. And I know this to be a fact because the, when the FedNow um, project manager contacts me and wants me to do an interview with them, I know that they're hurting and they are <laughs> uh, you know, trying to play catch up. So uh, my vote goes to RTP. The last question. You each, we have nine minutes left, so you have unlimited time. <laughs> Nobody wants that. I think I go first. Ron, it's you first. What is the most overhyped startup or concept? Yeah, I'm going to put my stake in the ground and say the most overhyped concept is buy now, pay later. 
And I may be wrong about this, but for right now, I, I think this is uh, way overhyped. First of all, let's keep a couple things in mind. In the US, last year, consumers made about $24 billion worth of purchases using buy now, pay later programs. That's $24 billion out of $5 trillion total retail. So it's really a spec. Now, let's, let's be on it, let's be real, it's gonna grow. Uh, more recent surveys I've done say that the, it's going to quadruple this year to $100 billion. Now we're still only talking about 2% of total retail. Uh, so the hype that be, buy now, pay later is getting seems way out of line with what the, you know, the real numbers are here and the impact. The other thing to keep in mind, too, is that an overwhelmingly high percentage of buy now, pay later users have a credit card. It's not like this is this huge percentage of consumers who don't have a credit card or are turning to buy, turning to buy now, pay later to do it. Now, I'm going to contradict because i got a couple of minutes here. And I'm going to take all the rest of the time, by the way, Jim. Um, here's Get why I might... Corner. Get him in the corner. Here's why I might be wrong. Is that oh, there in, we the, go. in the long term, <laughs> if buy now, pay later really does kind of capture and evolve to the... Remember, the one advantage it has over it is that it's, it's, it's saving merchants from uh, interchange fees. And so if it can grow big enough and capture enough, enough pie, what's actually going to happen is that buy now, pay later will evolve into credit cards. And that's what might make them not the biggest, uh, what was your word? Or the uh, Concept. Overhyped. overhyped. But right now I'm putting the stake in the ground saying buy now, pay later is the most overhyped trend. You know, this can be interesting. There may be at least one or two people in the audience that may be a little bit upset by this, but I think right now something's going on in the marketplace that is way overblown, and the impact of it is simply in the minds of the financial institution shareholders. It's, it's, it's the, I, I know what he's doing behind me. He's putting that belt on. But basically, that mergers of two mid-sized organizations makes a better digital bank. I've seen it. I'm seeing it more and more. I, go, I don't know if anybody else in the room goes back to the days when the savings and loan crisis happened, and they thought they could combine multiple savings and loans together that were bad and make a good bank. It didn't happen. It made a bad bank. And that's what's happening right now. I'm worried about those organizations that think that the merger, basically it gives them efficiencies, but on their shareholders thing, they say, oh, we're going to bring in better digital solutions. Well, there's at least one organization that's already combined two very big organizations and very much like United and Continental, they are simply going by, by two different identities still. I have not seen any major digital app come out that says they've improved upon my customer experience, and it's been over 18 months. And this is going down the path. Yes, it gives efficiencies, but when are we going to start looking out for the customer instead of the bottom line of efficiency and effectiveness of the financial institution? I'm, I'm not a big fan of all these mergers simply without any commitment to truly a better experience. You know, in many cases, you're going to have a worse experience because you have two legacy leaders that have been in place for a long time. Then you simply take one and then they move it to the other. So I'm really challenged right now by the concept that building bigger banks makes better banks because they're still not going to be as big as the top five. They're not going to be able to make the change that they think they're going to be doing. And they're going to be more stymied by paralysis of analysis because they'll think they have the money, but they can't be the big five and they're not that much better than the lower 20. 
Uh, so quickly, that? yeah. Uh, I, actually, Jim, I think that was a very good answer, and, and I agree. One thing I do want to point out, though, Jim, Jim alluded to the uh, savings and loan crisis. That was from the 1870s, um, and so most, most of us probably don't remember that as well as Jim does. <laughs> We've come to the uh, end well of done. our fight. Well done. It, and thank you for playing along with me on this. So we're going to have an audience vote, and you get to vote by... I want you to cheer and stand up, and I'm going to ask Amber you to help keep me honest by looking at this. You can vote for Ron, you can vote for Jim, or you can vote for a draw, in which case we just have to come back and fight it out again. And I'll come up with even more contentious questions. Who will vote for the reigning champion, Ron the Shiv Shevlin? (laughs) Got to stand up so I can kind of do the one... Jim the Moose Maroose. About the same <laughs> We don't count the misses, right? <laughs> that would be Jim's wife cheering the loudest. Max Festival is 103. Oh. All right, ask the third question. Here it becomes the critical question. Wait, 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 back up. Who doesn't care who the winner is? You just want to watch these guys fight it out again and what keep sparring. To, what happened to... That's what the, I was, that we knew that was going to happen. Thank you. Well, thank you all for joining us. If you have feedback, if you enjoyed this new format or have other suggestions, I'm just sick of being on bad panels and sitting through bad panels. We're open to it. The three of us are fortunate to work together quite a bit and work with a bunch of other talented speakers. Give us your feedback. Thank you. Have you ever felt frustrated when checking out online or making a payment over the phone? The go-kart team at FIS Impact Labs certainly have, and that's why they created a better payments experience. Go-kart recognizes your email and lets you pay quickly anywhere, with no passwords and no long forms. You can pay faster for anything, even things you wouldn't expect like healthcare, professional services and more. Go-kart also goes beyond online checkout and allows you to pay easily by email, text or with QR codes. If you sell products or services online or in-store, find out how you can use GoCart to simplify payments and increase your sales at gocartpay.com slash podcast. That's gocartpay.com slash podcast. GoCart with a C. FIS, advancing the way the world pays, banks, and invests. Hi, this is Brett King, the host of Breaking Banks. And I want to tell you about the brand new book Richard Petty and I have coming out in November called The Rise of Techno-Socialism. This new book examines the philosophy of humanity as a species and how the 21st century is going to be the most disruptive, contentious period humanity has ever lived through. During the pandemic alone, we saw the wealth of the world's billionaires surpass $10 trillion for the first time. The richest 1% of Americans today hold more wealth than the bottom 90% and often don't pay taxes. Unemployment skyrocketed during the pandemic in 2020. But in reality, artificial intelligence could disrupt even more jobs, up to 80% of jobs today. The new industries we're creating will ironically face labour shortages because we simply aren't training our students with the right skills today. 
In the first 20 years of the 21st century, we saw protests double from the 20th century averages, while attendance at these protests climbed over a thousand percent. At the heart of this is economic uncertainty about our future. And this is being amplified by the pandemics, it will be amplified by AI and automation, climate change and, of course, inequality. So how will the next 30 years play out? AI has the potential to disrupt, but also to reframe government, making big government small. Universal health care, free education, universal basic income and massive mobilisation of resources to mitigate climate change will all be part of the response needed to these seismic changes. The realisation that humanity needs to work together may be the biggest lesson of all. In techno-socialism, we examined four possible futures, and three of those possible futures result in a chaotic and divisive world with rolling crises. But one possible future, what we call techno-socialism, makes possible an inclusive, planned and emerging society where broad prosperity is possible. The book is out for global release in November. Feel free to check out www.riseoftechnosocialism.com for more information on the book and where you can get your copy. I'd be very grateful for your support and consideration of this new book, The Rise of Technosocialism. Great work from Jason Henricks, Jim Maroos, and, of course, Ron Shevlin on the great banking debate. But coming up in the second half, we have a feature from our Breaking Banks Europe team. Matteo Rizzi was at Money 2020 Europe and had the opportunity to catch up with Paul Taylor from Thought Machine. Now, uh, you, you know in the news, of course, that uh, JP Morgan Chase has been uh, launching their digital pure play efforts in... Uh, the UK with Chase. But one of the announcements that might have been missed in all of this is that they have decided to replace their core systems in the US with a thought machine uh, platform. So uh, Matteo gets into this with uh, Paul Taylor, uh, the founder of Thought Machine. And it's a very interesting conversation. Let's check it out. Hi, Paul. Hello. Welcome, welcome to uh, Breaking Banks Europe at Money 2020. You just came back from like a big announcement, and uh, it looks like Thought Machine is, you know, keeps announcing new things. It's like a very busy Money 2020, isn't it? Uh, yes, it certainly is. I mean, it's great to be here. It's great to be, uh, you know, part of uh, a live show again. And of course, you know, uh, it's it's good to kind of you know have a lot of good news to. Uh, to say good to meet new fr- uh, new friends, all catch up with old friends, and um, you know there's certainly a buzz about the place. I think. So why don't share a little bit about uh, you know right now a huge, huge financial institution sort of uh, uh, you know brings its trust you know yes. to Thought Machine to reveal something that like uh, seemed unbreakable you know un- yeah. un- until a few months ago. Talk a little bit about how did you win this. Oh, right. So, so the, the institution is uh, J.P. Morgan Chase. I wanted uh, him to yeah, say it, you know, and, I, uh, I, I didn't want to spoil know, the name. Uh, you know, um, it, 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 it is a, you know, a huge bank uh, by market cap, by balance sheet, by number of customers. And, uh, you know, and a hugely innovative bank, a hugely systemically important bank. And so, so the news was uh, we just announced today that we've signed a, you know, a, a global multi-year licensing partnership with, uh, with, with J.P. Morgan Chase. Uh, how did it come about? Um, 
uh, we've been talking to them for a, for a long time. Uh, in fact, they invited me to, I, I think the start of it was they invited me to talk at one of their conferences about four years ago. And I, uh, I pitched Thought Machine and they said, very, very interesting. And they said, but that means we would have to replatform all our bank. And I went, yeah. And they went, oh, okay. And, uh, you know, and then we've been talking to them, doing proofs of concepts, various pieces of project work. And uh, they've got a great team. They're very, very, uh, they've got a very deep technical team uh, there. So in a way that's, uh, you know, it, it's uh, it, very good to deal with other people who are you know, uh, so into technology. Uh, some banks really struggle with the technology, uh, Chase does not. So. Um, uh, so we always thought we were dealing with peers uh, 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 along the way. And, um, you know, we, we showed off what our core banking engine does. They were obviously impressed and, and we got there. I mean, there's a lot of negotiation and things like that as, as well. But it's, uh, it, it, it feels a very positive moment right now. So it, it feels like a, almost a pivotal historical moment here, right? Because, oh, well. <laughs> no, yeah. yeah, because and I'm not saying because, you know, we are in, we are in your booth and I, uh, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not pleasing anyone here. But truth is that, uh, you know, the fact that like a middle-sized bank sort of, uh, you know, in, in an agile way, you know, would choose a, a, a company that until three, four years ago was a startup, you know, yeah, let's yeah, yeah. Uh, put yeah. it this way, you know, it, it, it was no news. This one seems like a, a sort of a, almost a cultural mindset, yeah, 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 right? Yeah. That's what it looks like, don't you think? Um, uh, yes, I mean, uh, the way I say it is, uh, I mean, we have always been, uh, you know, pure to our beliefs. We always really believe that cloud native core banking is the way to go. And uh, and when we first started this, uh, it was an open question of whether any banks would listen. But but I always find that the banks listened. That we always got conversations, and we always got conversations with senior people very early on. So I always knew that if we could do it they would be very interested right so so it's not that you try and pitch an idea and they go don't be silly so it, it, so they're always interested and then it's a question of building it uh, and then you know we've been we started building it six years ago and, and we, we've been building it out and we've uh, you know acquired plenty of customers along the way it's ones we can talk about um customers that are here lloyd's uh scb standard chartered and uh and, and, and many others and and there's other ones that other big banks that are that we've sign what we haven't haven't announced yet but uh, we are very very focused um so a lot of money 2020 is about digital banks and challenger banks and things like that which is an important segment to us uh, and, and that that is that is one foundation in what we do but we've always been very very interested in the big banks uh, because uh, they have this like legacy technology um it slows them down it stops them from innovating and we really think if we could solve that problem then uh you know we'd really be uh, that would really be something. So we've always been, always been looking at the big banks and always been looking at basically stage one is, can we build them the platform of the future? And then stage two, can we give them enough confidence that they want to buy it? And then stage three, and then can they integrate it and get all their customers off the old bank and put it onto our bank? So you're gradually, all those conversations are being won and gradually, you know, um, the banks are, are agreeing with this uh, more and more. And, and often the conversations are very friendly. It's just about the question of, you know, how are we going to navigate this uh, journey and how are we going to uh, get these things done? And, and the, the confidence in us is increasing all the time. So, Paul, you know, we, I know that this is going to be a super busy uh, Money 2020 going ahead. Thank you very much for being with us. And uh, stay tuned because this conversation is far from being over. Thank you, Paul. Thank you very much. Yeah, great to be here. And it's a wrap. Thank you.
That's it for this week. If you like the show, make sure to give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform or share it with a friend or share it on social media. We'll see you again next week with more Breaking Banks. <laughs>